Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture, taken from Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. This is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the other brothers, they hated him, and they could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright. Then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. He had another dream and told it to his brothers, saying, Look, I have had another dream. The sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What kind of dream is this that you have had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the matter in mind. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks Thanks be to God. Good morning. We have been studying the book of Genesis over the last several weeks in a sermon series entitled The Human Purpose, and today is the conclusion of that sermon series. And if we take a step back for just a moment and look across all of the stories that we've been studying, we can see a few clear patterns, ones that we'll also see played out in today's lesson. One of the most obvious patterns is that of family dysfunction. Family relationships are messy, and they reflect a lot of what is troubling about the human condition in general. Jealousy and pride, deceit and power struggles. But there's another pattern that emerges across these stories, a pattern that cuts straight to the question that we have for this series. What is our human purpose? Today, as we study the Joseph story, I want to examine how God chooses and uses ordinary people like you and like me to participate in God's dream of bringing forth his will and his kingdom on earth, even when our human tendencies seem to get in the way and even fight against it sometimes. This story teaches us a great deal about who God is and about how God works in creation, often in subtle ways, sometimes in mysterious ways. It also teaches us what it looks like to be human, both fallen and created in the image of God. Now, the Joseph story, taken as a whole, serves a pretty important function in the overall narrative of the Old Testament. It's a hinge between the patriarchal period of Genesis and the Israelite slavery in Exodus. Without this story, we wouldn't know how the Israelites moved from the land of Cana into Egypt, 
how they went from being this small family clan into this Egyptian slavery and eventually on to be a liberated nation, fulfilling that promise made to Abraham many generations before, long after his life. Sometimes in our lives, we have significant delays in answers to prayers or in dreams that God may have given us. And sometimes when we experience these delays, it makes us wonder, kind of like we saw Sarah do a few weeks ago when she laughed at the idea that she would have a child well into her old age. We wonder, will this ever come to pass? Will it ever be answered? Bishop McAlilly posted an article earlier this year, and the title of it was A Future Not Our Own. It speaks a little bit to this human divine interaction and the messiness of it and the waiting that we sometimes experience. It was written as a memorial to Oscar Romero, the archbishop who was assassinated while celebrating mass back in early 1980s in El Salvador. And these reflections I think are really important for today. Listen to what he writes. It helps now and then to take a step back, to take the long view The kingdom is not only beyond our efforts, it's beyond our vision. We accomplish in our lifetime only a fraction of the magnificent enterprise that is God's work. Nothing we do is complete, which is another way of saying the kingdom always lies beyond us. But this is what we are about. We plant the seeds that one day will grow. We water seeds that are already planted knowing that they hold a future promise. It may be incomplete, but it's a beginning, a step along the way, an opportunity for the Lord's grace to enter and to do the rest. We may never see the end results, but that's the difference between the master builder and the worker. We are the workers, not the master builders, ministers, not messiahs. We are prophets of a future, not our own. And that last line alone holds a deep truth. Like all of us, each generation of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, were prophets of a future not their own. Their actions planted seeds that far outlived them. In fact, seeds that still are sprouting today. Our God is known as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Joseph, who we meet in today's story, is from the fourth generation of these called people. He's a precocious 17-year-old who was created and gifted to lead. But Joseph, he's not liked by his brothers, partly because his father loves him so much more than the rest, partly because he is so gifted and he's a little bit obnoxious about it, and he's a little bit of a tattletale. There's lots of reasons why the brothers do not like Joseph. As of the reading that um, we just heard a moment ago, Joseph had 10 brothers and a sister. The last of the siblings, Benjamin, is yet to be born. So at this point, Joseph is the youngest and he's the only son of Jacob and Rachel, Jacob's favorite wife. Remember the one that he worked 14 years to get permission to marry? And Joseph's brothers are so fiercely jealous that they could not even speak peaceably to him, the text says. Things are bad. Relationships are bad. Stretched to the breaking point. 
And Jacob makes things worse when he gives Joseph that very special coat, the one with the sleeves down to his palms and down to the soles of his feet. That famous multicolored coat, as many of us have heard it called, was a visible sign that Joseph was precious in his father's eyes. And then came that proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, the dreams. In the first dream, which Joseph immaturely and insensitively shares with his older brothers, we see the binding sheaves of the siblings bowing low to the binding sheaf of Joseph, which his is standing tall and proud. In the second dream, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bow down to him and all knew that this referred to the father, the mother, and the 11 siblings. Everyone was in agreement. He had really gone too far this time. As we have seen, the very idea that his father and older brothers would bow down to him was deeply countercultural and insulting. This was a patriarchal culture. The firstborn son was the one to be given privilege and prestige and a greater share of the power and the wealth. It was certainly not to be the youngest. So the text says, quote, they hated him even more because of his dreams and because of his words. And even his father, who deeply loved him, rebuked him, saying, even your mother and I should bow down to you? Yet, just like Mary, the mother of Jesus, the text says that Jacob pondered these things and he kept them in his heart and his mind. Jacob, as you might remember, was a dreamer too. Now, before this dream could become a reality, the story takes a bit of a detour. And in case you aren't familiar with the whole story, I'm moving now beyond the text that we just read. You see, these jealous brothers, they decide to take matters into their own hand. They decide that in order to kill this dream, that they must kill the dreamer. And interestingly, it's the older brother, Reuben, the one who's in the position to be most threatened by this dream. He's the one that compels them not to resort to murder. Rather, they knock him down and they throw him into a deep, dark pit. After some debate and a seemingly rather casual dinner given the circumstances, they decided that they after all would not kill him, but rather that they would sell him to slave traders for 20 pieces of silver, and so they did. Now, interestingly, it's the brother's reaction to the dream not simply the dream itself that put Joseph's life in the hands of the slave traders who take him to Egypt and put him in a position where many years later the brothers actually do bow down to him. They had traveled from Cana to Egypt in search of food because there was a severe famine. And with their faces bowed low before him and they don't even recognize him as their brother, they bow down and the dream happens in concrete reality. Now, I don't have time to explain all of the twists and all of the turns that got Joseph to this place, but what I wanna point out is that it was anything but a straight and an easy path, and there was a lot of waiting. Now, oddly, I saw a Subaru commercial as I was working on this message, and maybe you've seen it. It had an interesting point about all of this. There was a young couple and they walk into the store and they're asking about a particular trail that they can't find. And an elderly apparent blind man stands up and says, you won't find that trail on any map. And he goes with them to show them the way. And so it is. 
Joseph's story is a little like that. There's no map. It takes all kinds of twists and turns. Life is a little like that. For those of you who are parents, you'll know it's also a little like that. There's no roadmap. There's no instruction guide. And if you've ever experienced it, God's vocational call can be a little like that too. In my experience, that part of the trail that you are shown is just that very next step in the path. You never get to see very far into the future as much as we might like to be able to see further into the future. The best that we can do is find an older, wiser trailblazer to help show us the way. So Joseph's path was quite bumpy, but he had a destination. He had a purpose. And no matter where he found himself, whether he was enslaved or in prison, he seemed to do well, both because he never gave up and he worked hard and because the text says that God was with him. Now, interestingly, if you pay attention to the text, in this whole Joseph story, God never directly appears to Joseph. What God gives Joseph is a dream, and it drove him. Whether he assumed this dream is from God or not, the text actually does not say. But most of us, like Joseph and his brothers, we do not receive direct communication from God. There's no burning bush, no voice from heaven. But God gave Joseph a dream, one that brings him and his father Jacob a lot of pain long before it brings the intended blessing. It's a dream that took a lifetime to work out in concrete history, and it clearly shaped Joseph's life directly and indirectly. So I pondered today and I wonder, have you ever had a life-shaping dream? Have you ever had something impressed upon you, whether at night or during the day, a vision given to you by God, a calling? Do you know that Albert Einstein's tremendous scientific discoveries were urged along by a dream? The book, A Trip Around the Sun, shares this, and maybe you've heard this story. When Einstein was a small boy, his father gave him a compass, and he was mesmerized by it. He was mesmerized by the power that seemed to emanate from within that magnetic pull. He would write years later, I can still remember that this experience made a deep and lasting impression on me. Something deeply hidden had to be behind things. And as a teenager, the intrigue and wonder of physics crept into his dreams. One night, he dreamed that he was sliding down a hill faster and faster until he approached the speed of light and the stars radiated a broad spectrum of color, and he was entranced. When he woke up, he knew that he just had to understand what was going on in that dream. In later years, he said that his entire scientific career was a meditation on that dream. Albert Einstein did not understand the dream he had when he was 13, but something deep inside him kept him pondering this dream his entire life. It was a driving force, a vocation, and the fruit of it lives even today. It's interesting to me how things come to us in our dreams, this strange mix of conscious and unconscious factors, a place where Scripture says that God can speak to us, Do you believe that? 
I had one of those strange dreams one time. It was before I was called into ministry, and it's been a bit of a, a guiding or driving force for me. I don't usually like talking too much about personal stories, but if you'll indulge me, I'll tell you just a little piece of my call story. In this dream, I walked into a church service, and this man came up to me, and he was really anxious. And he said, thank goodness, you're finally here. Well, I was getting worried. And he pointed toward the pulpit. What? <laughs> there has to be a misunderstanding. How could I have not known I was supposed to be preaching? What could I possibly say? So I reluctantly stepped into the pulpit, not having a clue what I was going to say. But I opened the Bible and I looked down and I read a passage of scripture that was in front of me. And it was from the inspiration of that scripture that I look up and the Holy Spirit inspired me and I preached this effortless sermon. And let me just pause there for a second. That's not how it happens when I preach in real life. <laughs> I wish it did. Now, I don't have any idea what I said in that dream sermon, but I do remember waking up and remembering the passage of Scripture that I read, and that fascinated me. It was 2 Timothy 2.15, and at that time, I had no idea what this passage of Scripture said or even the context in which it was written. You see, this dream came long before I recognized my vocational call, long before I had any depth of knowledge about Scripture. So naturally, I assumed that it was something uh, totally un related or random or meaningless. <clears throat> but when I looked it up, I was a little bit taken aback. It actually made sense in the context of the dream. And as it turns out, in the context of my life. In this passage, the apostle Paul is encouraging his protege, Timothy. He says to him, quote, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved by him, as a worker, one who has no need to be ashamed, rightly explaining and interpreting the word of truth. In other words, don't be ashamed. You're approved by God. Go out and teach. Go out and preach. Now, I woke up and I thought, what am I supposed to do with that? And I couldn't go back to sleep, which is pretty unusual for me. And then something even more unbelievable happened, and I'm kind of reluctant to share it because it is kind of unbelievable, but it's part of the story, so I'm going to continue on. So I go into the den and I pull a book off my bookshelf. It's a book by the author Renita Weems, and I just opened it up to the middle of the book, and the chapter that I opened to, kid you not, the title was, quote, How God Speaks to Us in Dreams. I'm not kidding. I'm not making this up. So, of course, I stayed up the rest of the night reading that chapter in the book. And then I still wondered, am I in the twilight zone or is this a vocational calling? Was it all random coincidence? We'll tell ourselves anything. Well, I'll let you make of it what you will. But for me, although it was by no means the only thing, it was one of the things that nudged me along to what I now understand to be my vocational call to ministry. Now, like Joseph and his brothers, in the end, it's not the dream itself that matters as much as how we respond to it. 
No matter how these nudges come to us, which of course for all of us is different, it may not be a literal dream, it may be a passion, it may be something God has put on your heart, a nagging idea that just won't go away. Whatever form it comes in, we must strive to interpret it correctly. And at some point we have to trust and we have to test it out. We have to take action. Now it took many years before the early seeds of my vocational calling could sprout in any concrete way. And without a doubt, that dream is still unfolding for me today. As we have seen, Joseph was given a dream by God that took many years to unfold. It gave him a vision, a calling, an added purpose to what otherwise could have been mundane administrative work, counting bins of grain and vats of water and organizing storehouses of supplies. As we know, Joseph's purpose wasn't only to store up supplies, it was to save a nation and his family from famine. Now let's be clear. The main point of this story isn't about being able to say, I told you so to his brothers when they bow down to him. In fact, I could argue actually that the most important purpose fulfilled through Joseph comes at the very end of this saga and it's the heart of the gospel message. It comes when Joseph responds to his brothers with grace and forgiveness. It comes when he interprets his experiences, even the bad ones, through the eyes of deep faith and trust in God's providence. And this is part of our human purpose too, to live with grace and to live with faith, even in those difficult moments, even in those delayed answers to dreams and to prayers. Joseph's grace-filled, faith-filled response is not what we might have expected from that bratty, prideful young Joseph we saw at the beginning of this story. Something has happened to him along the way. After all those years and all those trials, he has matured. He can see differently. He can think differently. He could have easily taken revenge on his brothers for tossing him into a pit, contemplating his murder, and actually selling him into slavery. Joseph had the power at that point to condemn them but he chose to use his power for good, for healing, and for reconciliation. Throughout this story, the presence of God is with Joseph, but it is subdued. It's hidden even for hours sometimes, days, weeks, sometimes years. We see in this story, Joseph has experiences of being hated, beaten, thrown into a pit, nearly murdered, enslaved, imprisoned, falsely accused, and the list could go on. And you know what? In the end, God's purposes still prevailed. Near the end of this story, Joseph makes a powerful theological statement. He says to his guilt-ridden, anxious brothers, fear not. For what you intended for evil, God used for good. No matter what Joseph's brothers or anyone else did to thwart that dream, God actually used it, all of it, even the really bad stuff, to bring forth God's purpose. And that, my friends, is good news because we all mess up. And I want you to hear me clearly today. There is 
nothing that God cannot redeem in your life or mine. There is nothing that he ultimately cannot use to draw us closer to him and even into our vocation. Sometimes we are those wounded healers. Joseph was not a perfect person any more than any of us, yet his actions, even when he wasn't fully aware of it or couldn't have fully grasped it, were dream-fulfilling, kingdom-building actions. And this is true of all of the saints who have gone before us, and it is true of us. God is always at work, both through us and in spite of us and beyond us. Thanks be to God. So I wonder... What is God's dream for you today? What is God's dream for us? Let's pay attention to those nudges and go forth in faith to live into that dream, both for the hope of today and the hope of the future. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.